the gist of it. We did finish uh, the first eight verses, so we'll be moving on to verse nine next week, and we'll kind of catch up with any que lingering questions if people still have them. We are planning a Super Bowl party uh, today. I'm going to aim for getting here about 4.30. Uh, our fire stick person ended up getting sick, so Marina's is going to be coming about 4.45 to get it set up for us. So, you know, uh, I, I, our fire stick person, right? Uh, so I think, um, I don't even know what time the pregame starts, but... Uh, so, so hopefully about a quarter till five, five o'clock, we'll have it fired up here anyway. But we'll be in if you want to bring in some snacks or just visit and stuff. Uh, I'll uh, be, come by to pick you up around 425 or so, I suppose. Okay. okay. Uh, so uh, we have our regular studies this week, Acts 8 on Tuesday, First Timothy 6 on Wednesday, Romans 6 on Saturday. Uh, on the 25th, if you didn't catch it next uh, last week, we've got our uh, congregational meeting rescheduled for the 25th. There is a uh, part on your communication card. You can say, hey, I plan on being there. We'll do uh, lunch and the meeting like uh, in the past. And, you know, based on the weather we've been seeing, I think we'll have better luck than we did in January. So, so February 25th will be our, our uh, congregational lunch and meeting. And I just put it in the bulletin so you could get it on your calendar on March 29th, which is a Good Friday. Oh, it's a two for one. So, so on March 29th, help us celebrate Doretta's birthday at a Messiah and the Passover presentation. So we'll have a, a messy. There you go. So, uh, so we'll have a Messianic Jew who will be here, who is a, a Jew who believes Jesus is the Messiah, uh, and he will walk us through the Passover, uh, the, uh, the elements, and how these kind of point to and find fulfillment in Jesus. So it'll be on that Friday at 6.30 p.m. Uh, Kirill Swerdowski or something like that is his name. Yeah, so, uh, so I just want to make sure you can get it on your calendar uh, to plan on. We, we've had him here before, uh, and it's a very nice little uh, presentation about how that Passover points us forward to Jesus. And this is something that you can invite others to. So they don't have to be a part of network to come to the event. Uh, we should say that for anything, right? Feel free to invite anybody to anything, you know, Sunday school, church, Tuesday study, Wednesday. Invite people, invite people, invite people, right? Three times for emphasis. Uh, so, but this is something that, you know, people from other churches might want to come to. Uh, so, you know, if somebody's part of another church, they don't have to join network to come hear the Messiah and the Passover. Feel free to invite people and, and, uh, hopefully we'll have a, a good crowd for them that night. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I was really, uh, Im impressed when they gave, I was like, well, how about we do it on Good Friday, right? Uh, so, uh, so it'll be, uh, right there on Good Friday. So let's, uh, pray and we'll have some worship. Oh, glorious Father, we give you praise for this morning and just the sun that is shining, and, and uh, we thank you for your sun who shines upon us. And so we just pray for your blessing and your anointing upon today's service. Uh, we ask that you would just, uh, just captivate us with your beauty and your glory and just the wonder of who you are and all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ, your Son. Uh, Lord, I, I know that people are coming uh, and experiencing different things in their lives as we gather, and we just... Pray that we can lay aside any distractions that may be upon our hearts and that we could just uh, take a, a little bit of time to focus our hearts and our minds upon you, to offering you the praise that is due to your name, uh, and just listening to how you might speak to us uh, through, through the worship, through the message, through the service, through the fellowship even, how you might minister to our hearts with whatever it is that we may need. So we just bless you as we come in Jesus' name, who's taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to start out this morning with Psalm 66. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing about the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. 
All the earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. We gather here this morning to do just that. If you would please stand as you are able, and we're going to start with indescribable. see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. Praise our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. We continue on with Wonderful Merciful Savior.
just continue on with our praise. I'm not going to read and try to transpose at the same time. So we are going to continue on with Great Are You, Lord. It's been a little while, but hopefully you'll remember.
Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 10, 25 through 37. On the occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him and, to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May God bless the hearing and the reading of this word and Dan's message. I, uh, I found this uh, letter written to a neighbor that says, uh, and I quote, uh, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. And when your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you laughed. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. So I'm writing this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. Cordially, Bob. Bob's a nice guy, don't you think? You know, everyone wants good neighbors, don't we? we? We all want good neighbors. The challenge is being a good neighbor to everyone, isn't it? We want good neighbors, but the challenge is how do we be a good neighbor? And the reality of life is, is there are people that we click with and there are people that we conflict with. And it's easy, or shall we say, easier to love those that we click with, right? Those who love us in return, those who we have similarities with, those we have common interests with, those who think similarly than we do. Uh, perhaps these days we should say those who hold the same politics we do. You know, there's some people that we just find it easier to be in fellowship with, to love, to give back and forth. It's not so easy to love those with whom we have differences of various sorts and varying degrees, whatever those differences might be. And, and as we continue in this chronological journey through the life of Jesus, uh, we find ourselves today at one of his best-known parables, which happens to be unique to Luke uh, and from which we have derived a figure of speech, right? So it's not uncommon for today for us to hear a phrase such as, well, he's such a good Samaritan. And of course, we know that what we mean by that phrase, right? Somebody who gives assistance, one who gives help, one who comes alongside one in need. Uh, in fact, there are states that have good Samaritan laws to protect you if you come alongside somebody in need and you give reasonable assistance, right? There's actually, uh, I don't know that it's every state, but at least many states have good Samaritan laws that protect you if you go out of your way to assist somebody at a time of need. Now, for us, the idea of a 
good Samaritan is not foreign. It's not unfamiliar. It's certainly not contradictory. There we are. Uh, but it's complementary, right? Uh, it would be complementary for us. So consequently, this parable, if it's read or if it's heard from our viewpoint, it misses the radical impact that it would have made on Jesus' original audience on the lawyer and the listeners of Jesus' day who had a very different perspective on Samaritans. Because for them, good Samaritan would have been the epitome of oxymoron. It was possible to be good. It was possible to be a Samaritan. But it was not possible to be a good Samaritan. Right? Because Samaritans were despised. They were looked down upon. They had... Uh, they were seen as foreigners, they were seen as impure, they were, there was hostility and enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so if we read it from our context, instead of listening to it from their context, we miss the radical point that Jesus is making. Now for now, uh, the larger context, we've just had the successful mission of the 72 who returned, and they're rejoicing in their mission, proclaiming the kingdom, and wow, did they have victory stories to tell. So you might remember they come back on the scene and they say, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And Jesus kind of responds with, you know, greater than what God has done through you is what God has done for you. And he says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in that your names are written in heaven. But at the same time, while he's steering them to rejoice in what God has done for them, it's not going outside the notice of people what is happening in terms of who this Jesus is what's happening through his followers. And so on the scene, we have a religious expert, a lawyer, who has noticed, right? Now, a lawyer is a legal expert trained in the law of Moses, and it says he stood up to put Jesus to the test. He's catching the attention. So verse 25, uh, it's here somewhere. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So we have a legal expert in the law of Moses. He's standing up, putting Jesus to the test. Now, honestly, scholars debate uh, whether there's a sinister motive at this point or not. Because the word test can mean different things in different contexts, right? So it can mean, quote, to try and learn to ascertain the nature or character of someone, to examine. Now, if that's the particular case that's being applied here, then the lawyer sees uh, this following that's beginning to amass behind Jesus, and they're recognizing, hey, there's some miraculous things that are taking place, but he's also realizing, you know, this Jesus character, he's not properly credentialed. He didn't go to the right schools. He didn't do things the way that we normally do things. And so if that's the case, he could be uh, examining his wisdom, examining his theology, his orthodoxy. He's asking the question, is this Jesus really on the up and up? Now, in a world that's filled with false teaching, to test teaching is not only a good thing, it is a necessary thing. And everything and everyone should be tested against the teaching of Scripture. Now, incidentally, that includes Network Bible Fellowship and Dan Jasmine, right? Everything and everyone should be tested against the teaching of Scripture, and it's part of our role and part of our task to do that, right? To exercise discernment, to recognize the difference between what's true and what's false, what is in alignment with God and what's out of alignment with God, right? So in one sense, the lawyer could be doing just that. Now, on the other hand, the word test can also mean the idea of tempt or to entrap, which is a very different intent than to ascertain or to examine, right? And certainly how it's used in other occasions when we see uh, that they came with the idea of testing Jesus to entrap him or, you know, uh, to set a trap. So, so we can argue motive uh, from details such as the uh, quote, he stood up or addressing him as teacher or later that he desires to justify himself. But regardless of the motive, he comes with a common and a debated, and one could argue perhaps the most important question one can ask. It says, teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Mark Moore writes, and I quote, uh, His question is reasonable and important, but not easy. With the hundreds of laws in the Old Testament and the thousands of oral traditions, how's a fellow to know which ones are essential for gaining eternal life? It's not always easy, you see, to weed out the wheat from the chaff. 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that was actually a, a question that was kind of tossed about in Judaism at this time, as, as was also the question of what's at the essence of the law or what sums up the law. And the underlying assumption is, what's required of me? What's required of me? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or more to the point, what, how can I be assured that I have eternal life? And, and in effect, he's asking, what box do I need to check? Now, we know it's not that simple, don't we? Well, actually, it is that simple, but it's just about what box we're ta talking about, right? So he's saying, what box do I need to check? And Jesus is asked this question, and then he volleys it back to the expert in the law. So verse 26, Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, the counter question implies that the answer is both knowable, but not only is the answer knowable, it's noble based on the proper interpretation of the Old Testament, which was the only scripture they had at this time. So in fact, what he's saying is, you know, the, the gospel that we have articulated in the New Testament in its fruition is in its seed form in the Old Testament, right? It, it's discernible from the Old Testament text. As Augustine puts it, uh, he says, uh, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And as we think about much of the New Testament, what does the New Testament do for us? It connects the dots of the Old Testament, right? It helps us to see the bigger picture of what God was doing, what God is doing, and what God will do uh, through Jesus. So much of what we see in the New Testament is a connecting of the dots for us. So the lawyer, he cites the right answer. Now, you know, it's, it's true that sometimes we don't know the right answer, isn't it? Sometimes we, we struggle and we're like, well, I don't know what's right. I don't know what to do in this certain situation, right? But all too often, uh, it's not a matter of knowing the right thing, is it? It's a matter of doing the right thing. It's not a matter of knowing what's right. It's a matter of doing the right thing we know. And he knows deep down what is at the essence of the law. And so he gives his answer and his response combines actually two passages from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, which he puts together in verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, if this sounds familiar, uh, it's also in Matthew 22.35-40 and Mark 12.28-31. Only in those passages, a, a scribe inquires of Jesus not about eternal life, but he's asking the question of what is the great or the most important commandment? And Jesus answers it in the same way. He combines the same Old Testament text. Uh, and what I want to point out for you today, since we also do a harmonization as we go through, is that these are not parallel accounts. They're similar accounts. All right? So it's a different context. It's a different setting. We see a few of the details different, even though the content is repeated. So uh, we'll just throw this out there. Have any of you heard me say the same story more than once? Right, So we have parallel accounts as we go through the New Testament, but not everything that's similar is parallel, right? Because material can be reused. Illustrations can be retold, right? Sum-ups can be re-given, right? So, so what we have in the other passages and, and here is we have similar content, but it's not a parallel account. Uh, but what we do see is we have a, a lawyer, an expert in the law, who's in agreement with Jesus over what is at the heart of the Old Testament, now, with that said, we need to understand that agreement in principle doesn't equate to agreement in practice in the day-to-day. -day. So, as we think about how do we best love God? Well, we could say, well, is it through religious rituals and ceremonial cleanliness? I don't know, say, as pictured in a priest and a Levite. Or, do we best love God through a faith that leads to obedience and shapes how I relate to others, Right? So we have a least agreement in principle, even if it's going to shape out differently in practice. Now, how about loving uh, the neighbor? The parable is going to shift us from limiting who our neighbor is, right? Because that's the intent when he says, wishing to justify himself, well, who is my neighbor? What's he trying to do? He's like, you know what? Some people are hard to love. I want to make sure they're outside of the circle. That's what he's asking. 
He recognizes the demands of the law, and he recognizes that he's not meeting the demands of the law. Remember how he asked the question, what must I do? And he knows the right answer, but it's a matter of doing the right that he knows. And so he's trying to change the demands of the law and diminish the demands of the law because he knows, hey, I ain't making the cut. So he asked the question, who is my neighbor? And what Jesus is going to do through the parable, he's, he's going to shift us from limiting who our neighbor is to like a good neighbor. Oh, wait a minute. That's, a, that's something else. Uh, that's state farmers, isn't it? He's going to shift us to thinking about what does it mean to be the neighbor, irrespective of who it might be toward, right? He's going to shift us to what is it like to be the, behavior, uh, the neighbor. Because as it turns out, it's not about defining who the neighbor is that we are to love. It's about being the neighbor that chooses to love, regardless of who that neighbor might be. Now, as I kind of pointed out with the religious expert, you know, it's one thing to have the principle. It's another thing to know how it's lived out in practice, right? And uh, we're going to be talking more about the principle today than, than the, the practice and all of its, because, boy, you can get in all sorts of situations with the practice and what love is and what love isn't. But we have, uh, we have one question that's being answered in two parts, right? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, for today, I'm just going to say the individual parts are not as important as the composite whole. Right? And semantically, what he's doing with repetition of all and with the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength is he's saying we are to love God with everything that we are and with everything that we have. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we actually get to the great commandment, right? Because today we're going to focus more on going into the parable. So we'll, we'll deal with that more later. Uh, but really, the big picture is the composite whole more than the, the, the individual parts, right? Uh, we are to be completely and totally and absolutely devoted to God. And that's to be expressed through everything that we are and everything that we have. That's the big picture. And he says, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's found in the holiness code of Leviticus. And in the holiness code of Leviticus, you have this section of scripture that's calling us to be holy for the Lord our God is holy, Leviticus 19.2. And what he's doing is he's weaving these two together and answering one question, right? Because the lawyer understands that part of the way that we express our love for God it's through loving others. Now, that's not exhaustive of how we love God, right? We don't give worship to others, for instance, right? So it's not exhaustive, but, but part of the way we express our love for God is in the way that we love others. And part of the way that we image God, which is the idea behind be holy as I am holy, is through loving our neighbor. Now, the principle is easy, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Easy to know the right answer. And Jesus says to the religious expert, he says, you have answered correctly. Have you ever heard the saying, uh, the devil's in the details? Because it's not the doctrine, it's the practice, right? And he comes down and he says, do this. Carry out, perform, keep perfectly, keep consistently, keep constantly without faltering, without failing. You guys get the point? And you will live. Anybody want to say, is that all? Is that all I got to do? All I've got to do is love God perfectly and love my neighbor flawlessly, and hey, I'm in. I don't know about the rest of you. That doesn't give me a whole lot of assurance. There's a reason why in the next verse he's seeking to justify himself. Because in his own answer, he realizes that despite all of his study, despite all of his knowledge, despite all of his rituals that he performs, despite all the ceremonial cleanliness that he might practice, he's falling short in the application of the heart of the Old Testament. Loving God and loving one's neighbor. Now, uh, you know, at this point, I, as I'm, you know, kind of walking through the sermon, you know, putting things together, I'm thinking... You know, anybody want to say, excuse me, is there any extra credit available, right? Because I need some extra credit. And now remember, the question that he prompted everything was with, what shall I do? Now, to be saved by the law, you have to keep the law perfectly. 
And this is the problem with the workspace salvation, is that our good is simply not good enough. And the problem with do this is none of us have done that. And this is a reality that confronts the lawyer in the next verse where he seeks to define the neighbor and in so doing limit who he must love, which in turn sets the stage for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, uh, Jesus is not going to overturn the salvation by faith thing here, right? He's addressing a particular situation. Uh, and incidentally, uh, anybody know that command from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6.5 that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, right? Because it leaves out strength. Right? So Luke is in the, giving us a, an additional detail to help us understand what's all entailed in the Hebrew. Right? Uh, what precedes that verse? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Which is what? An affirmation of faith. Right? Because before we can talk about loving God with all that we are, we have to talk about believing and trusting in who God is. Right? So the command to love God is actually built on the foundation of having first faith in God. And that's really where we're going to find the Old Testament also presents us with. Because in the Old Testament, we have that same groundwork for righteousness being credit, credited through faith, not works. Genesis 15.6. It's what's expounded on and clarified in the New Testament. So, so uh, you know, we're not saved by what we do, but by faith in what Jesus has done. But part of what Jesus is going to be driving at is... Faith in what he has done shapes what we do. Now, the order is what's important, right? We're not saved by what we do, but by faith in him. But it's our faith in him that leads to loving him and loving our neighbor. And I don't know about the rest of you. I, I'm thankful that God uh, doesn't grade based on how, I, how well I perform. For that matter, I'm glad that God doesn't grade on the curve, right? Which would be, your performance relative to someone else. Because while I might find somebody that looks me, makes me look good, I can certainly find people that make me look bad as well. I'm thankful that God grades on the cross, right? Which is Jesus' performance applied to me, applied to you through faith. So Jesus isn't changing that here, but he is going to highlight that if we have true faith, true faith is not simply about only believing the right things. True faith is also going to leave, uh, lead us to live in right ways. So this is what Paul expresses in Galatians 5, 6. Uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So it's faith that lays the foundation for the two commandments. Now, as we look at this, faith is going to be more than holding a set of doctrines, right? It's also seeking to live rightly relating to God and rightly relating to others. Now, by his own interpretation of the law, deep down the lawyer knows that he's coming up short, right? So he's guilty in God's court, which leads him to verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And, uh, you know, in effect, when Jesus says, do this and you'll live, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, uh, maybe it's time to start practicing what you preach. And the lawyer's response to that is, I'm going to change what I'm preaching. Right? Because what he does is he lowers the bar. Uh, and isn't it just like us to justify our behavior rather than seeking to align it with God? Uh, right? We, and we do it in a variety of ways. Well, it was only a white lie. Well, everybody else is doing it. What do, who does it really hurt, right? Isn't it just like us to seek to justify our behavior rather than align it with God's standards? And, and the lawyer, he recognizes that some people are hard to love, right? So he's trying to put some limits, some boundaries on who's in the circle and who's out of the circle. As Craig Evans observes, it is easier to profess love for God and to observe religious rituals as proof of love for him than it is to show love for one's neighbor. And what Jesus is going to do is say, you know, love has no loopholes. There's no getting around the command that we have to love God and to love others. Now, as we get into the parable, the road going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was a dangerous route. And, you know, you could read any scholar and they're going to tell you, well, it dropped roughly 3,500 feet over 17 miles. There's lots of curves and there's lots of caves and there's lots of cliffs by which the robbers could hide. And it was an area that was notorious for thieves preying on travelers. And in fact, this little path even had a nickname. It was called... Uh, the pass of blood. 
So, you know, the people that were thinking ahead and preparing ahead and planning ahead, you know what they did? They traveled in groups because there's protection in neighbors. If you're a thief and a robber lying in wait, are you going to go after the, the big caravan or are you going to go after the lone traveler? So if you had the opportunity, you would plan to travel in a group. But we all know things don't always go according to plan, right? And sometimes things don't work out the way that we would like. And so on occasion, there was this scenario where maybe somebody didn't have that option. And that's the scenario that Jesus presents us with, with the parable, with the man traveling down this road who falls among robbers, is stripped, beaten, and left half dead. But hey, never fear, because a priest is near, right? That's my gift. Right, coming up with a rhyme. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, Edwards writes, and I quote, by chance, a priest was going down that road. The Greek expression means an unexpected conjunction of events. Coming immediately after the misfortune of the traveler, it raises the prospect of help. The expectation would be that a man of God would certainly help a man in need. And I think that's an expectation we continue to hold today, right? A man of God would certainly help a man in need. But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the priest, of course, you know, they were involved in temple sacrifices and stuff. We come to the next verse. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, now, the priests, they primarily officiated temple sacrifices. They maintained the temple. They were involved in instruction. Uh, do you know who the Levites were? The Levites were assistants to the priest, right? So they were assistants to the priest. You know, the priest, well, you know, he's a busy guy. He's got a lot of things on his plate, right? He's important. He's got things. To... Well, certainly, if he didn't help, maybe his, assistants, his assistant will do it, right? And the Levites, they, they served in various functions to maintain the temple and service, but primarily their assistance to the priest. Well, certainly, certainly the Levite will stop to help. Well, of course, he passed by on the other side. Now, interpreters will speculate as to why they refuse to help, and I'm probably not giving you anything new today. You know, part of my ability is to regurgitate what somebody else has said, right? So they'll say, well, perhaps they're afraid that, the layer, that it's a trap, right? The, the robbers are laying in wait, and they don't want to fall to the same victim as, as them, right? So maybe they have fear of being jumped themselves. Well, it's possible, but the text doesn't tell us. You've probably also heard, well, maybe they have fear of being rendered unclean. You heard that one before? Because if they came into contact with a dead body, if the guy's dead or if he falls dead when they're helping, right, then they will be rendered unclean. So you'll hear people say, well, they fear that they might be jumped or they fear that they'll be made unclean. Now, incidentally, uh, do you guys all know the saying, all roads lead to Rome? You've heard that before. You know, it's also true. Uh, all roads lead down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up, you know, any way out of Jerusalem, all roads lead down from Jerusalem. You notice what Jesus says in the text? Uh, now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Language, going to Jerusalem was always going up to Jerusalem. Coming away from Jerusalem was going down from Jerusalem. What that means is the priest and the Levite, guess what they're not doing? They're not going to the temple to offer service, which is when cleanliness becomes an issue. They're leaving Jerusalem to go to Jericho, which was where the highest number of priests actually lived outside of Jerusalem was in Jericho. You know what they don't have to be when they're not serving? Clean. So perhaps, perhaps they're just tired from their service, right? And they're in a hurry to get home. I know we can never relate to that, right? Well, they're just tired. They're in a hurry. Now, the point that I want to make, you know, after, you know, in a long, in a, a short point and in a long way, why they didn't help is irrelevant. That they didn't help is the point, right? Jesus doesn't give us the details of why they didn't help because it doesn't matter. That help that's the point you know we can all 
muster all sorts of excuses to justify why we do or But to whatever extent we justify our excuses, our excuses don't justify us. And Jesus is pointing out the moral failure of the priest and the Levite. Now, just like there would have been an expectation that the men of God would have helped the man in need, uh, Powell comments that in post-exilic texts, right, so this would be Jewish literature after the uh, uh, Babylonian exile, he says there was an expected trilogy in their stories, right? Uh, so not like Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Return of the Jedi, right? But there was an expected trilogy, right? So there were priests and Levites and the lay people, which was an expected trilogy in their text. And so at this point, the people would have expected, well, if Jesus introduced the story and he started with the priest and then he followed up with a Levite, who's next in line? The lay Jew would be the expected next character in the story. But what Jesus does next is rather startling and shocking because the next character in the story is not the lay Jew. It's a Samaritan. And that's where verses 33 through 35 pick up. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, uh, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, as I pointed out earlier, Jews and Samaritans, they despised each other. And for a Samaritan to be the hero who steps in with compassion where the two Jewish officials did not, well, let's just say we're talking deeply, deeply humiliating to the Jews. And not only does the Samaritan not look for a loophole or a reason not to give aid, but he goes over and beyond in the aid that he gives. So he binds up the wounds. He pours on oil and wine. Uh, think of antiseptic, right? We're using the medicine of the day. Uh, this is antiseptic. He puts him on his own animal. He provides for his ongoing needs. Uh, Bach estimates that the two denarii would cover three and a half weeks at the end. Morris says perhaps up to two months, right? So this is not an insignificant amount, right? It, he's, he's truly going over and above and taking care of this man's need. And the point is, is true compassion, truly loving one's neighbor. It doesn't come with loopholes, nor does it seek to get by by doing the bare minimum. Have you ever been in that place? It's like, well, what's the minimum I can do to get by? That's not the question he's asking, is it? He's seeking to do what's necessary to meet the need at hand. Now, remember, the whole parable was started by, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, for many of the Jews, who did they see as their neighbor? Fellow Jews. Right? It wasn't necessarily the house next door, right? That's usually what we... Th but for, for most of the Jews, the neighbor was fellow Jews. However, even within the ranks of the Jews, there were some stricter Jews, like, say, the Pharisees, at least some of the Pharisees and the Qumran community, that would even exclude fellow Jews who failed to measure up to their standards. So they were all about defining, drawing their circle as to who they had to love and who they didn't have to love. Now, the assumption is that the man beaten, robbed, and left half dead, the assumption would be that he was a Jew. But does Jesus tell us then? Actually, he doesn't. He just lists him as a man. Jesus doesn't identify him because the detail doesn't matter. And then he goes on and he makes a Samaritan the hero. And then, rather than answering the question... Who is my neighbor? Jesus had the audacity to turn it around with his own question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? So rather than identify the neighbor, Jesus says, you know, who proved to be the neighbor? And rather than define the neighbor that you are to love, he's saying, be the neighbor who shows love as an expression of your faith and your love for God. Now, when Jesus asked the question, guess who couldn't bring himself to really give the answer? You notice in his answer, he doesn't say, well, it was the Samaritan. 
He can't even bring himself to mention the fact that a Samaritan is the hero of the story. He can't even bring himself to say, well, the, the Samaritan is the person who's actually fulfilling the law. He can't bring himself to say, well, the Samaritan is the one who's fulfilling the law to love your neighbor. So he says, verse 37, he said, well, it's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, Marshall writes, and I quote, Jesus does not supply information as to whom one should help. Failure to keep the commandments spring not from a lack of information, but from a lack of love. It was not fresh knowledge that the lawyer needed, but a new heart and plain English conversion. Which brings us back full circle to what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because the answer is not found in religious rituals or ceremonial cleanliness or the right heritage. But the answer is found through faith in Jesus who converts our hearts. A faith that works through love for God that finds expression and love for neighbor as well. What he needed was a new heart. A heart of faith that would lead him to love. Amen. In your bulletins, you have a communication card, and we invite you to think about how God might be speaking to your heart uh, and to uh, offer that up as, as part of your worship this morning as well. Uh, as we uh, prepare ourselves for communion and stewardship, uh, there's, a tr- there's a tradition with the Good Samaritan that goes all the way back to the church fathers. Maybe you've heard it before. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually wrong, but it's a very creative and so I want to share that as we uh, bring ourselves to communion. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to share it with the caveat that this is not what Jesus is teaching in the Good Samaritan, right? It's just very creative. Uh, so if you go back to the this parable, maybe I shouldn't tell about the false teaching of Scripture. Uh, so the, the man they pictured was reflective of humanity, uh, falling among robbers was, uh, represented Satan and the evil angels who strip him and leave him half dead. And he's only half dead because there's still that lingering image, even if it's distorted, of the image of God. Uh, so the priest represents the law, could not save, uh, nor could the Levite, who represents the prophets, right? The Old Testament being the law and the prophets. It was only when the despised Samaritan came, who was represented by Jesus, that he could be saved. So Jesus bound our wounds through his wounds. He set us not upon his own animal, but carried us through his work and his sacrifice. And Jesus paid not with denarii, but he paid with his own blood, that we might be healed and that we might be saved. That's what you would call an allegory. It's a completely discounting all the context of the text and, and giving it a, a creative uh, rendition, right? Uh, but that was actually, you can probably read that in commentaries. It, it was uh, how the early church fathers taught it. Uh, it's just not what Jesus was teaching through the parable. Uh, but as we come to the Lord's table, it does help us think through what Jesus has actually done for us. Because who proved to be the neighbor more than Jesus? Who did, uh, did not look for loopholes? Or who did not seek to do the bare minimum more so than Jesus, who as we come to this table, we recognize that it is through his wounds that we are healed. It is through his death that we find life. And so as we come to this table, may we, may we reflect on what it truly means, uh, what he's done for us, and how faith in what he has done, how that now shapes how we live toward God and toward others. So I want to remind you that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. O glorious and loving Father, as we come to this table, we recognize that there was nothing that we could do to inherit eternal life. That is the entire reason that Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. But at the same time, we recognize that to truly have faith in, in who you are and, what, and who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that that kind of faith, it changes us and it redirects in how we live. And so we come to this table and 
We just pray that you would make us mindful of what's been done for us, but also thoughtful of how we now respond to the gift that we've received as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just say precious to that, right? We invite you to receive the gift that has been given to you and to reflect on how you might respond to him. I think one thing we can all relate to is the comparison game. We compare ourselves with so many. As a, as a new wife, you compare yourselves to other new wives. I'm speaking for myself here. As a new mom, you compare yourself to other new moms. As a mother of a teenager, you compare yourself to other moms of teenagers. And on and on and on it goes. And the trouble with that is there's always someone that you can find that's doing things you think are better than the way that you're doing it. It never ends. It never ends. There's never a way that we can get ahead of that because we always see the best of everybody that we're doing that with. We don't see the struggles. We don't see their internal thoughts. We don't see their heart. We don't see any of that. We just see what we think is the best. God sees. God sees our hearts. He sees everything. He sees our, our responses to things, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And sometimes I feel like he's up there going, come on, Amanda, really? <laughs> and the wonderful thing is that we have a Savior who loves us enough to say, don't compare with them. I've done it. I've covered it all with my blood so that you don't have to play that game. You just have to love me and do your best for me. 
So take comfort in that thought because what a savior we have. That's how we're closing today. If you would stand as you are able and we're going to sing what a savior. He is that atoning sacrifice for us. One of the thoughts that I had was, you know, how do you really wrap up a message on the Good Samaritan except for with a challenge, right? May we not only affirm our faith with what we say we believe, that we're to love God and love our neighbors, but may we confirm it in how we live with a faith that finds expression and works itself out through love. So go and do likewise with his help and as you follow his lead. Amen. <laughs>